my wife loves sharks. Uh, Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, that's like, a, that's like a Combs family holiday. Don't try to ask us anywhere during Shark Week. With, with like internet stuff, it's a little easier because, you know, the Shark Week special is whenever you want it to be. But, but man, from the time we were first married, like sharks were the thing that Tiffany just, she just really likes the look of them. And, they're, and they are, they're fascinating and they're strong. We moved up here and, and went to the aquarium for the first time. You see those seven gills or, you know, leopard sharks, whatever they have in there. That was so cool. But really, like, the, and then, you know, we burned out of the aquarium. Anybody else? Is there an amen? Like, we did when the kids were little, and you go, the aquarium's awesome. I haven't been the aquarium in forever, right? It's still awesome, but I assume it's still there. And, um, and but there was that time a few years ago where they got a great white shark. Do you remember this? And you think Tiffany likes regular sharks. I mean, great whites are the thing. And they're just so awesome, right? They're just powerful. They jump out of the water and, you know, it's a bad day to be a seal. I'll tell you what, they, they're just no problem. Um, and they're huge. And there's just something really special about like that apex predator. They're fun to learn about, fun to look at. So we made a special, of course, you know, made the special pilgrimage to, to the aquarium to see the great white shark. And and, you know, it was a little baby one. It's like this big. Um, and and we, were, we were super proud because they found it off of Huntington. Like, that's where we're from. Or, well, that's where Tiffany's from. I'm inland from there. But still, it's like, that's right. You don't mess with SoCal. We'll send a great white shark after you. Um, but, uh, but we went, and you spend the time looking at this huge, you know, I don't know what exhibit, it, what that exhibit's called, but it's where they keep the big stuff and, and the tuna and all that kind of stuff. And so you spend your time and there's sharks swimming by and you go, is, is that the one? You know, because you know it's little and so you think, well, maybe I'm not going to recognize it if it's not eight feet long. You go, is that the one? No, no, probably not. Is that, oh yeah, I think that's the one. No, it doesn't move quite right. And then this little baby murder machine just swims by and like looks at you and you go, oh, like that is definitely the great white shark. When you see it, it's not like anything else. It's completely different. It's not like a bigger version of a leopard shark. It is completely different. And I tell you that story because that's kind of what Luke wants to do with Jesus today. Not that Jesus is a great white shark. In fact, I think we all know he's Aslan, right? He's a lion. Um, but here is the big idea in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today. Jesus is not like anybody else. Jesus is not just a bigger, more blown up, truer, better, more talented earthly preacher. No, rather, Jesus is something else entirely. And not only that, when you behold him, you'll know it. And I'll tell you why this matters to Luke. Luke is writing in a time um, in about the early 60s. Uh, and something is, is kind of happening. It, it seems kind of strange that this would happen, especially so quickly in the early church. But it also seems like a very human thing to happen. And that as the gospel is going out, as the apostles are going out and preaching, they're finding that as the church has grown, there are some people somewhere who identify as Christians, and yet their focus is not on Christ, but their focus is on something else. Can you imagine that there would be people like that in the world? And so instead, and so we run into people in Ephesus in Acts 19 that, that 
know the baptism of John and yet don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know that the Holy Spirit is, is a person who um, comes upon a person and regenerates us. And so they know about repentance. They know about recognizing their own guilt and trying to do better, but they don't know about the power, strength, and person of the Holy Spirit and his work in their life. You know, elsewhere we find... Um, in Corinth, where certainly Paul was, and Luke is an associate of Paul, and so we'd say certainly Luke was at Corinth and had seen this. You remember the, the admonition, the, the encouragement, even the like chastising that Paul gives the people in Corinth that says, look, some of you are saying, I'm from Apollos, I'm for uh, Peter, I'm for Paul. Is Christ crucified? Get your eyes off of these earthly leaders and get your eyes on Jesus. If I have anything to say, if it's been a long weekend and you need a nap, here's the big idea. Like, get your eyes off of earthly leaders and put your eyes on Jesus. That is the only way to live the Christian life. And if our eyes are on something else and we say, no, I'm a Christian because I follow that man or that woman or this movement or this church, not only is that not the original idea of Christianity that is passed down to us in the scripture, it's idolatry. Whew. And... So Luke goes all the way back to the ministry of John to demonstrate that John and Jesus are not only not in competition, they're not in the same ballpark. They're not only not in the same ballpark, this is a different sport altogether. It's not that Jesus was the new and improved John. And it's not that Jesus is the better version of anything else, but rather... That John was just a prophet and a preacher. We've seen those before and we'll see him again. Jesus is God. He's just different. So Luke goes all the way back to the ministry of John to make these kind of two things very clear. First of all, he wants to highlight the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was part of the redemption story from the beginning. And you know... It's hard to emphasize everything once a week for a half an hour with you, but maybe we don't make a big enough deal about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Like it is normative. It's not some churches lean on the Holy Spirit, but we lean on the scriptures. You can't lean on the scriptures without relying on the Holy Spirit. I pray every time before I step up here, God, I've got nothing. If you don't empower us, if you're not the teacher in the room, Holy Spirit, if you are not the one empowering believers, we're just a club and I don't want to be in it. You with me? So Luke wants to go all the way back to the ministry of John to say the Holy Spirit's not an afterthought. The Holy Spirit is not someone that even just happens upon the church at Pentecost, but rather it's the guidance of the Holy Spirit the whole time. And he's part of the redemption story from the very beginning. The first time Jesus comes on the scene, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. The other thing that Luke wants to make very clear is that, again, Jesus is not just a better version of human religious leaders. He's profoundly different. You know, we can get suckered into this kind of like, and, and this is why I just need to stay off the internet entirely, but we can kind of get suckered into like, well, if you have this set of religious beliefs or you have this set of religious beliefs or you have this set of religious beliefs, you think this Bible, you think this book was written to start a religion? You think this, this, this Bible was written to start a denomination? <laughs> no, 
This was written to reveal God become man, that we might live a brand new, different way. And it's okay to organize in religions and, and denominations as long as we're not mean and arrogant about it. But the work of Luke is not that we would be arrogant in our understanding of the truth, but that we'd be free as we worship the God-man who is the truth. And it is different than following a religion. And it is different than saying, it, it, we, there ha we have no argument between Jesus and other world leaders. <laughs> it's not Jesus and other world leaders. You see how silly that sounds? We're talking about God. Now you could talk about John and other religious leaders, people who have had certain ideas about the divine, certain ideas about ways to follow him. And we could have that argument. You could even have that argument with Paul. But when you behold Jesus, he's not just another shark in the tank. Are you with me? He's God from the very beginning. So as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, isn't this beautiful? Do you remember where we've been? Like John has been preaching, and we'll get to this again this week, but John has been preaching, not like, hey, come on out for, like we're passing out goldfish crackers if you come out. It's not like, hey, win a prize or whatever. He's like, hey, anybody think they're wrong? Anybody think that Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations and instead we're just a bunch of dangerous snakes and we should repent of that and we should get right with God? And everybody's like, there's a good group of people who are like, yeah. I do think that's what's happening. I do want to repent. And so there's this movement out there in the Jordan River and people are being baptized and they're repenting and they're deciding, I don't want to live like a bag of snakes anymore. I don't want to live like I'm dangerous to myself and others. Instead, I want to live in the joy. I want to live in the love. I want to live in the God life that God has called me to. And so there's this, this energy of, of, does this sound like fun? Man, this sounds like a fun place to be. And so, of course, there's a spirit of expectation. So you come out of the water, you just got baptized, you're like, I'm going to live differently. God is obviously doing something here. And so as that expectation began to like bubble up, the most natural human thing happened. They started going, who did this? I heard it from John. Yay, John! Which is the exact wrong. Give them a break. They're humans. But you know full well that John was not calling them to follow him. Rather, that John was calling them to follow this new way and introduce, prepare the way for the Messiah himself to step on the scene. So, so they start going, well, this John might be the Christ. Like, who did this work? I heard it from John. You heard it from John. John's been baptizing us. It must be John. And something is definitely happening there are crowds, people are changing, there's love. You've got Roman soldiers and Pharisees and common people both looking to John saying, tell us how to live. That's a miracle. That's something only God can do. And so they start looking around and going, okay, who do we follow? Maybe John's the Messiah. And so let's talk about a little bit what they expect when they say John is the Christ. Because there's a word that is not in the text, but that we have to understand the proper definition of if we're going to understand this text, because the word Christ is in the text. So when they say maybe John is the Christ, what was their expectation? What's wrapped up in that, you know, 
second temple Judaism idea of salvation. What did they mean by that? Because salvation probably meant something different to them, it, to the readers of the, of the New Testament, to the writers of the New Testament, than it means to us. When we say the word salvation, we are almost exclusively talking about what happens after we die. Are you saved? Right? One of my... Um, Oh, who, what's that guy's name? One of my favorite people is a guy whose name has slipped my mind. I'll tell that story later. I'll think of it. But when we say the word salvation, we're almost talking about um, is the state of your soul in such a place where when you die, you would go to heaven. And you hear, you hear pastors talk like this now um, all the time. If you go to youth camp, at some point, somebody is probably going to say, if you got in a, if the youth bus flipped over and you died on the way home, would you know where you're going if you were to die tonight? It's an important question. I don't think we should ignore important questions like that. In fact, the old idea about being a preacher was preparing people to die. And that's a really important thing to do. And yet, that definition of salvation is just being ready to die is is not what these people heard was not their expectation as they were looking for salvation, as they were trying to identify the Christ. So when we say salvation, we're mostly talking about preparing for death. Are you saved is almost always a question about the state of your soul. When Israel, before Jesus, talked about salvation, they meant being free from oppression, free from trouble, free from danger, they meant being in a right relationship covenantally with God in the promised land without idolatry, being saved from other nations. When the Israelites cried out for salvation in Egypt, it wasn't for the means to go to heaven when they died. It was because they wanted out of Egypt. You with me? They did not say, oh, uh, Moses was the redeemer. God did not say, I have redeemed you from Egypt to mean um, hey, even though I left you as slaves in Egypt, you had the means to get to heaven. No, it was a physical salvation. So while salvation isn't in our text, this is all wrapped up, and they say maybe John is the Christ. The Christ means the anointed one, the chosen one. So of course, this is a reference to Old Testament prophecy. Is this the guy that Isaiah was talking about? Are we about to be saved? And we need to think about what they were actually thinking about because it almost certainly wasn't, is this the one who will free us from our sins by sacrificial death on the cross? Are you with me that that's how we talk about salvation? We would say, are you saved means, have you received Christ who died for your sins? We would talk about, have you been saved from your sins? And they were talking about, we need salvation from Rome. So rather, when they say, is John the Christ, they might, it might be something like, is this the guy who's going to free us from Rome? Is this the guy who's going to give us our land back? Is this the guy who's going to establish Israel as the dominant world power? And here's why that's an important point. Again, the New Testament writers completely changed the way we talk about salvation. They completely changed the way we talk about the kingdom of God. And it isn't always that the Old Testament, it isn't, it isn't usually the way Old Testament folks thought about it, but really... It, it, it's not the way we thought about it, the way we think about it either. Old Testament folks thought about salvation as like this 
the societal and political revolution to overthrow oppression. Does that make sense? Can you think about that in terms of Egypt? Can you think about it in terms of Babylon? We're being saved from Babylon means we're allowed to escape and come back home. We're being saved from Egypt means we're coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land. But when the New Testament talks about salvation, it's also not talking about what you and I talk about, think about when we talk about salvation mostly. It's not merely. It's, of course, including salvation to a ticket to heaven, if you will. But it is never merely that. It is also something that is available to you and I right now. So Jesus' preaching was not follow me and you'll get out of hell someday, but rather the kingdom of heaven is near. You can experience it now. A brand new way of living. The now, but not yet, kingdom of God. Are you with me? Something that can exist, that does exist in every political structure, in every culture, in every um, land, in every ethnos, in every people group all around the world, the kingdom of God is near. And that is a brand new idea, as the people are saying, is John the Christ? We can be in the kingdom with Jesus as our king and us, his family, under him in any land. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that we will spend eternity with in every ethnos on the globe, of every tribe that eat all kinds of funny ways, that have languages that you'll never understand, that have customs that seem weird to us, and yet they are with us in Christ. And that is salvation in the New Testament. So while it's not the same way they used it in the Old Testament, it's really not the same way we use it now um, commonly either. So when these guys get fired up about John's teaching and they wonder, is this the Christ? What they, what they are wondering is, is this the start of the political movement to overthrow Rome? And modern readers might be thinking, oh no, is this when sins get forgiven? But the truth is so much more profound. And it is that these people needed their whole idea about who is the Christ. It needs to be completely undone and rebuilt, redefined. They're going to have to let go of their cultural ideas about kingdom and religion and what it means to be saved and grow a much bigger idea of who the Christ really is. And I imagine we need that too. If ancient readers were tempted to make salvation all about cultural change, maybe we're, maybe modern readers are tempted to make it only about eternity and to ignore what God wants to do among us now. So we're tempted to look to God for salvation, or at least we're tempted to look at God for salvation from hell, maybe even from our sins. But then when we need saving in life from earthy things, we ignore our Savior. We hope that the right law or the right political system might be our Savior. Or we hope that the right career and the right family structure might be our Savior. And by Savior, again, do you hear how I'm using the word? Might be our means 
to peace and joy now and forever. And we think maybe it's just the right organization of a church. Or maybe it's just um, the, the right you know, amount of health in my life, in my family's life. So we cry out to God for salvation from our sins, for, you know, to punch our ticket to heaven, but then we work so hard to solve all of our own problems instead of saying, no, Christ really came to be your Savior so that you could enter a now but not yet relationship with the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, my friends, that's not what John was offering. And that's not what any religious leader is offering unless unless they are pointing you to Jesus. So, in Jesus, whether we are persecuted, struggling, ill, oppressed, in pain, in difficulty... The New Testament writers write these incredible sounding things like, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. They write, I have found the secret to being content in all situations. They write, even though I prayed, Paul writes, even though I prayed three times that God would take away this struggle, God's grace is enough. See, here's why I'm belaboring the point, because I'm here to tell you that peace and joy and love are available to you right now, not just suck it up and wait to die, but that love and community and fellowship and peace and a sense of shalom and fullness in your heart is available to you right now, but only in Christ. So John's answer to this question is so important. As they say, is John the Christ? And he says, John answers him saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John doesn't go, look, no, I'm JV, and Jesus is the varsity preacher. Like, I know I'm good, but Jesus is just more talented than me. That is not it. John wants us to be clear that Jesus is holy, different, a whole nother thing than John is. And watch how he breaks it down. He says, look, he's different in in power and he's different in his place in the kingdom. First of all, he says, not only, look, he's mightier than I, and I'm not even like unworthy to untie his sandal. He's referring to the lowest slave in the house, right? Like I'm not even willing, I'm not even able to be the one who unties his sandals when he gets home and washes his feet. So what John is saying by that is not only that Jesus is up here and I am down here, but I'm a slave. I'm never growing into him. The sons grow into the masters. The slaves just grow into bigger slaves. You and I, we might work our way up the religious structure and be a really talented servant. We're never going to be God. The image that John is, is latching onto here is a pretty common one in the parables, and that is placing God as the landowner, the one who owns the place. And John says, just like the lowliest servant. Jesus is not a better version of me. Jesus is the one who owns the whole joint. And of course, most obviously, different in quality. He's, he's, it's a better baptism 
It's not just a better baptism. It's a brand new thing. Look at the difference in baptisms. John says, look, okay, we're having a great time out here. I baptize you with water, but I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with fire, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So these are both like images of cleansing. You with me? Water and fire are both ways that things are purified, are clean. But look at, just take a minute, let the English major in you percolate up for a minute and look at the symbolism. John says, look, I baptize you in water. It's a temporary clean. If you've ever washed anything, you know that it gets dirty again, right? John is saying, look, it is cleanliness. I'm, this is symbolic. I'm, we're talking about being clean as, as pure enough to be in the presence of God and pure enough to have relationship with him. But when Jesus comes, the one who's coming after me, he baptizes with fire. Not only this, but John, John's baptism is, is symbolic. There are not actually sins being washed away here. I always make that joke when we have a baptism here, right? When I'm doing the baptism class or whatever, I always go, let's not make a mistake. I'm not going to sit in this water with your sins if that's what's happening. No, it's symbolic. What John did was like that. It was symbolic. It was a, a, a way that people said that they were committed to God in a new way, but it was, it was a symbol. What Jesus does is not temporary and is not symbolic. Jesus comes to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. It is permanent. So instead of like the image of cleansing in water, it's like the image of purifying in fire. When you purify silver and the dross goes away, it doesn't get drossy again. It has been purified. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is why there's all this language in the New Testament about dying to self, to put to death what is earthly in you. We're not talking about behavior modification here. That's religious language, to like be better and do better. And we got that, that's fine, but it's got to come from hearts that have been purified. New man, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's permanent. What Christ offers is not just a temporary time of confession or a different behavior, but rather Christ offers the death of your sinful nature and actual purity before him. Man, can I just ask you now, if this is not part of your experience, if you have not come to Christ, if you've just been religiously trying to be better and trying to be better, would you give up on that and come to him that the Holy Spirit might purify you that you might have a fresh start that you might enter into this peaceful joyful relationship with god right now not only is 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 the image of this of the holy spirit as fire which is common in the in the old testament right he's latching on to old testament imagery it's a burning bush it's a pillar of fire our god is a consuming fire and so as john brings that into the new testament for us he says not only is it permanent but it's personal this is not just a commitment on your part to be better it's not just a membership into a club but it's immersion to be baptized just means to be dunked that's what the word means like like you baptize a donut in coffee just woo baptism and and it's to be dunked, to be surrounded by, to be immersed in a relationship with God. That the Holy Spirit is the consuming fire. 
that surrounds us and takes over every part of our life and causes growth, causes maturity, and causes peace and joy to grow where there has only been struggle and guilt. It's not just that new habits mature us. It's God himself. Also, John wants to point out that Jesus is different in authority. John proclaims the truth. Jesus is the truth. Are you with me? That's different. Look at all the his, the personal pronouns here as you read the second part of that verse. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Who's the judge? Jesus, not John. (laughs) Not me and not you. Jesus, the winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. He is the landowner. All of heaven and earth is his. And to gather wheat into his barn, he is the one who is gathering those who belong to him to himself, and he will, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We don't come to Jesus and go, well, I'll do, I'll do my reading and see if I'm picking Jesus or another world leader. When you see Jesus, when you behold him for who he is, you fall on your face and the might and power of who he is. Jesus is not the messenger, he's the landowner. Jesus is not the prophet, he's God. Who can stand before him? It is for us to marvel at the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus. He is not merely a great teacher. He is and has the power to save you right now. To change us, to transform us. Not just so we could endure a while longer and then live the good life when we get to heaven, but that you could experience joy and peace right now. Verse 18 says, so with many other exhortations, and I'm I'm running out of time, so I'll go quickly, but with many other exhortations, he, that's John, preached the good news to people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved for him by Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to uh, to them all, and he locked John up in prison. This is just a glimpse of John's ministry. It says there's exhortation. Exhortation, that's the word um, uh, paracolone, which is like urge. It's like the same root word as paraclete, the one that comes alongside. So it's like it gets translated like urge, like beg. So what was John doing out there? Was he aloof? with a staff in his hand saying, thou shalt repenteth or thine. No, he was coming alongside. He was begging people. Guys, would you get right with God? Do you see the love? Do you feel the, like, the hope that as he just comes and goes, would you please repent? Stop being a pile of snakes. And then it says he preached or proclaimed, some of your Bibles would say. That is the word gospel, evangelion, but it's the verb root it's the verb version of it so i love that idea the gospel is a verb matthew and mark use it more as a noun but but here um we're told you know what john's ministry was he came alongside people and begged them to live out the gospel that the good news wasn't that it was something that you could understand or have but it was something you could live that the good news was you could live differently than you're living right now. And if you are looking at your life saying, you know what I need is to live differently, would you please be welcomed and come? You know, you wonder, it says that he preached this good news. It certainly wasn't easy news. Repent, bear fruit. But my friends, can I tell you that the best news 
is not the easiest news, but the best news is the truest news. And the first thing we might feel as we encounter the gospel is shame. The first thing we might have to understand is that we indeed have been looking to other things, earthly things, worldly things, people, systems, just human stuff to give us the good life, to bring about the proper kingdom. And the first thing we might have to do is say, God, I need to get over that. It hurts my feelings a little bit to know I'm wrong. I am experiencing shame. But this is the best news. Give up on all that. And of course, not everybody received it as good news. Folks hear the same message and some realize that they're wrong and they come to repent. But others, and Herod stands as the example of this, others violently reject that shame, that guilt, that, that loving rebuke. You and I don't have beheading power. That's where that's going in John's life, right? We can't, we can't be like, well, that hurts my feelings. I'm going to throw somebody in jail and behead him if I feel like it. We don't have that kind of power, but we certainly have the kind of power where we can justify our actions and our, and our, and our hopes. We can justify our idolatry in our own heads. And when you hear, give up on everything and just turn to Jesus, what is it that you're hoping for is going to lead to the good life? What do you think is going to give peace in your heart? What do you think is going to be your source of joy? What do you think is going to be your source of hope? If the answer is not Jesus, then repent of that idolatry and come to him. And people either to respond to stuff like that by rejecting it or receiving it. And that was true here. The good news is you were born broken. That's great news to know. You live your whole life with the impression that you were born good and you will not understand why life stinks so much. The good news is you were born broken. And not only that, but you've made broken choices. You can spend your time defending yourself and judging other people or you can give all that up and just let Jesus heal you. You can let the Holy Spirit burn away all that idolatry and just experience the peace of heaven now. You don't have to live a broken life. You can enter the kingdom of God right now where there's internal peace, love, there's joy, there's hope, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world. Where for the first time you are free not to sin. You are free not to follow your heart. You feel you're free not to self-destruct and to not find identity in the broken systems of the world. You could be saved now and forever. And let me show you why you can trust Jesus. And I'll just wrap up here. But, but verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. When everybody else got baptized, they wanted to know, What do I do next? When Jesus gets baptized, there are answers. And I want to show you that this is a revelatory ministry, both for the people and for Jesus. They are revealed to be a brood of vipers. And Jesus is revealed to be God. A couple things to notice. First, it was while Jesus was praying that the Holy Spirit descended. So his baptism was not 
the, the, the trigger. This was not, these are not things that happen at exactly the same time, although it is normative for these things to happen at the same time. The idea in the early church of baptism was believe and be baptized. And those are different events, believe and be baptized, but they were intended to happen right around the same time. The second thing you would notice is that Jesus identifies with humanity. Of course Jesus didn't need to repent. I love that question where you go, you go, why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't need to repent. What did Jesus need to do? Did Jesus need to be born in poverty in Bethlehem? Did Jesus need to suffer a life of poverty? I almost just fell off this thing and died. Did you see that? Um, did, Jesus, did Jesus need to go to the cross? Did Jesus need to identify with us in any way? No. Why did Jesus get baptized? Same reason Jesus did everything. Because he loves you and wants to identify with you. It's the love of Christ we see as we see his incarnation. It's the love of Christ we see as he identifies with humanity here in baptism. And then also, would you notice, lastly, would you notice the love in the Trinity? Would you notice the active work of the Holy Spirit? Would you notice the personhood of the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not like the force. It's not like like the Tao. No, rather the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and active in his work. Would you notice the authority of the Father? Would you also notice the affection of the Father? You know, we have had too many Christian movies poorly produced that have bad, like, Victorian accents, and we think this is all so formal. Is that what you read here? I read a loving father who wants to tell everybody how much he likes his boy. You see the descent like a dove. There's a ten. What, what would that mean to you if you were going to describe something as the Holy Spirit descending like a dove? Do you see the peace? This is not bolts of lightning or thunderclaps or earthquakes. That's coming later, but here in this identifying moment, it's this tenderness. You know, I'm mindful too when other people see God, when there's experiences, you think of Ezekiel, of Isaiah, of all, many Old Testament prophets, you think of of Mary and Joseph and the early stories in Luke, everybody's afraid. You, you, you get a messenger from God or you see the, the, the angel of the Lord and, and you're afraid. And the first thing everybody gets told is fear not, but not Jesus. Because Jesus is not afraid. Because Jesus is the son of the father. And this is a moment of tenderness and sweetness. Do you see the divine identity of the Son? Ah, look at him being baptized with the people who are repenting. Man, just so everybody knows, Son, I am so pleased with you. And it makes our minds wander to original creation where God looks at at unbroken creation and goes, it is good. And now here we have new man sinless man and God says that's good see Jesus is not just another earthly religious figure so my encouragement to you today is to give up on everything that is not God if you were just to write a little note and say I would have peace if I would be satisfied if 
I would have joy if. I would have hope for the world if. And if there's anything except Jesus on any of those lines, I would encourage you to reject every other Savior. Don't respond to the truth like Herod, defensive, angry, violent, but rather respond with expectation, with repentance, and find salvation in the now and expect eternity in the not yet. 